Hello everybody, welcome to another edition of the Value Line Observer with Val Hughes of the Value Guys. I'm a 30-year Wall Street veteran who's gone underground and taken on a secret identity in order to provide you with my candid views on a handful of stocks out of each week's Value Line Investment Survey. You've seen me on TV, you've seen me quoted in the news, but my bosses would never allow my unvarnished views on the air, so I've disguised my voice and they'll never know. This week, I take a look at the April 16th, 2010 edition of the Value Line Investment Survey, uh, but first a couple of caveats. One, this show is for entertainment purposes only, um, not a guarantee. Also, I may have a lot of conflicts of interest. Um, my lawyer tells me that I need to assure you that I may be saying the opposite of what I'm doing uh, for my own personal interests. Uh, recommending things I'm actually selling and uh, buying things I'm recommending that you sell. I don't know. Anyway, um, so be be warned. And then I may be completely uninformed. That's actually true. My lawyer didn't tell me to tell you that. I'm just telling you that. And then finally, I'm drinking. I may be heavily drinking. In fact, I wish I were right now. But... Um, and it's just, this is after work. It's just a hobby. Long-time listeners know. And so uh, now you're in on it. I'm just recording it. I've been reading Value Line a long time, and so I just page through there. I pick out a couple favorite ideas. And I have, again, this week, three pretty decent value ideas. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. Uh, but now the section of the show that I recently named... Um, it would help my portfolio if, because I started doing this rant and it turned out that, you know, that was, what was the point of it? And, you know, who am I to be ranting, et cetera? People want to hear about stocks and I appreciate that. And my rants are typically all just tax based, you know, and, and freedom based freedom for companies to get to do what helps the value of the stock, of course. Um, and so I decided to change the name to it from rant, which was pretty generic, to it would help my portfolio if. So uh, this week I have I have one of those. But first I just want to say I'm trying to be a little quiet, a little whispering, because I'm uh, my logistics again. The show's late, so I apologize. It's, it's been I'm traveling again, but I'm traveling with my family, and so. We're uh we're we're in a hotel and uh they're just over in the other room, you know, sleeping and I'm over here doing this. So I apologize um if you can't hear me, but just turn the volume up, what have you. I'm just trying to be a little more quiet than usual. Okay, back to this section of the show. It would help my portfolio if it would help my portfolio if they would stop picking on all the banks because we're going to need the banks to lend companies money uh, when they need to grow. And we're already having enough problems with the banks in terms of lending capacity and, you know, solvency, things like that. So to, uh, you know, to, 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 to put policies out there that cause the entire country to question uh, the integrity of banks, I think harms... Um, you know, the the goal of having people trust banks. So I'd say that. Also, um, you know, this is just my opinion, 
but um, this uh, these front page charges against Goldman Sachs. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of years myself in capital markets, not doing mortgages, but doing other things. And the SEC has a lot of rules about disclosure that are meant to protect investors, investors that, um, you know, might not read the prospectus, might not have uh, attorneys and accountants, but could just read it themselves and, and you know, feel like they're reasonably informed uh, with factual information. And so my understanding of uh, these charges is simply that in in documents that described uh, this mortgage transaction, uh, or it's not even mortgage, it's, a, it's insurance on mortgage tranches in effect, so it's complicated. So all the parties had attorneys and accountants, and more than one, I'm quite sure, on both sides. And so, yeah, there was an analyst uh, on one side of that helping uh, create the uh, security, choosing the individual securities that would go into this uh, fund or this offering. And on the other side were people that wanted to buy that, that knew what they were, that had access to the same fundamental data. I mean, this happens all the time. When one company sells stock, their analyst believes that, um, you know, the value of that particular stock or security is apt to be going down. That's why you would sell it. And simultaneously, there's someone on the other side who's buying it, another analyst, who believes that uh, those fundamentals perhaps are underappreciated in the marketplace, and that's going to be going up in value. So in a trade, it's inherent. This just seems obvious that you're going to have the interests of the parties buying on one side, selling on the other, are opposite. One is hoping that security is going to go up in value, and the other is hoping it's going to go down in value. This It couldn't get more opposite than that. Goldman Sachs and other brokers sit in the middle, and they facilitate this trade. So in effect, they're always in conflict with both sides of their trade, uh, depending on what happens later. You know, There's going to be a winner and loser in these things. And so um, the disclosure, evidently, you know, it, it, it's alleged that not all these details were disclosed as to who was helping choose these securities. But I have helped on these sorts of things in the past. And at the time you're doing that, you know, the other side, they already know that you're bearish because you're selling it to them. So the notion that the people selling it uh, were, were, you know, negative on those securities, you know what? Uh, yes, they were. That is not news. This is dog bites mailman. Um, the other side is always bearish relative to your side. The fact that they forgot to put that into the uh, prospectus, and so it wasn't disclosed that this individual was involved, it's just simply nonsense that that mattered in any way to the judgment of either side of the trade. Um, and so there's that notion, I guess. It, so uh, it, it, you know, it, it's, it's a crime, certainly. It's a, you have to disclose that, I guess, although there's probably hundreds of like violations by other firms every year just with the sheer volume of deals. This one's on the front page. Why? Because it's helping to distract people. Uh, it's obviously giving a target for the uh, you know anger of people that the stock market went down. But the stock market's kind of coming back. And uh, there are natural cycles in this thing. 
It may be hindered by increasing tax rates and increasing inflation and some of the things that are going on when you increase the percentage of GDP that's the government, but that's for another rant. I mean, right now, what you're doing is you're creating the sense that these banks are bad people for a disclosure error that my guess is, I didn't Google this up, that there's hundreds a year because the SEC sets up rules that are basically like a 15-mile-an-hour speed limit through town so they can pull over whoever they want, and, uh, and, and it should be that way. But let's not get the punishment or the proposed punishments out of sort with the crime. And the notion that this event had anything to do with the dramatic decline in asset values or the collapse of uh, the economy, GDP, or Lehman going broke, or those sorts of things uh, are not related to this disclosure issue. And in fact, this happened in 2007, I believe. So um, it seems to me that it's a distraction from the more likely uh, you know, culprits here, which is the unfettered expansion of the borrowing capacity or lending capacity of Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, which, um, you know, government policy was to increase the number of people owning homes, the number of families that owned homes. It's a very honorable uh, goal. And, uh, and so over an eight-year period, the percentage of families or households that owned their homes went from the mid-60%, which is a pretty good number relative to most nations, and it was stable there for a long time, um, by easing up lending standards. So, you know, maybe you've heard me say this before, but Freddie and Fannie eased up the standards by which loans uh, could be bought by them and would conform to the standards so that they could buy them from the banks that were originating the loans, that is, finding the customers. They would buy those loans and then sell them into the secondary market or keep them on their balance sheet. And uh, this is the sort of security that, you know, is caught up in uh, what Goldman was selling or it's related to that. And so if you want to point to the sort of original sin here, it's uh, a dramatic increase in the capacity of Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae and a government, a Congress that continued to vote for those increases to support the policy of increased home ownership. The problem, of course, is while that's a wonderful dream to have, um, in order to get into those percentages, you're 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 really in, in you know inviting people who really can't afford to buy homes to buy them, and um, you know a certain number of jobs in the country are cyclical in terms of income and things like that. So there's a natural level of people that are appropriate for home ownership. And, uh, you know, you got to look in those directions. But this whole Goldman thing has really distracted people from that. And meantime, you're causing people to think badly of the banks. We need the people to trust the banks, to put their money in the banks, to keep more, to keep borrowing rates low so businesses can grow. And then our stocks go up in value, my portfolio. So it would help my portfolio if we did that, whatever that was I just said. Okay. God, that went on a little bit. It really did sort of turn into a rant. I honestly don't write any of this down. I just I go off and uh, I try to keep it short. All right. Three ideas this week. I'll keep this very short. Uh, I went in uh, page number order out of the April 16th. Uh, 2010 edition of the Valley Line Investment Survey. 
you know, I've been doing the show now for about five years. And uh, if you go to the website, www.thevalueguys.com, which I probably should have said that earlier, there's a whole bunch of caveats and stuff there that you should probably read about. And certainly my attorney would want me to mention on the show. I'm supposed to do that up front. Oh, well. So, um, and on that site, on that page, there's a button to Val's Best Picks. And I have this uh, Yahoo Finance page that I keep a big portfolio. And every couple of weeks, I take a favorite name for the last four years or so, put it in there. I've got the original price. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, I've never, I sold one stock in there. And it started to be cumbersome. So all my favorites, there's about 50 stocks in there now. And you can see how they've done. Of course, um, there's a lot more green lately, so it feels better. I mean, last year, oh, my God, a year ago. There's a lot of pain, so I probably didn't mention about the best ideas list last year. No, I think I did. Anyway, go check that out. Um, and let's see. I need to take a beverage break right now and just have a, a beverage here. Um, <clears throat> okay, what am I doing? Well, this week um, we had some thrifts. I was hoping to get a friend of ours, uh, Tony Banks, on the show, but he was not available. Uh, there's a whole bunch of REITs in this week's issue, which, of course, are uh, you know paying out the cash flows on, uh, on different types of real estate. And there are a few interesting things in here. Um, you know, there's still a lot of excess capacity, but things are getting better. Definitely, banks are loaning a little bit more. The economy is getting a little better. Consumers are doing a little better. So it's just it's just what happens at this stage of a cycle. The question is, um, you know, how will it sort of curve out? And um, the last recovery, you know, job growth came back a little more slowly than the one before that, a little more than the one before that. I think the thing to note about that is we are a very productive um economy in terms of you know output per worker those sorts of things so when the economy drifts off um you have leverage down and you saw how industrial production and things like that plunged but you can swing up reasonably well without adding people for a little while and um and of course you know you uh, union labor forces outsourcing to cheaper countries and that goes on but i also think that a core reason that uh, employment growth has been slower coming out of these things is that that you know you got to think the internet you know is still a pretty new technology and um and so i think there are more and more ways uh certainly the software that goes with it and the interfaces are making it um more and more productive and more uses and i think you know some of the sort of volume-oriented clerical staff and those kinds of things that you'd normally have to flex up and down with there's a program doing it now and so um you know it's you, you you don't you know you don't need as many people and uh and you realize that when you really go to cut costs and you find out that you know there was a, a worker who when they left you know no one had to pick up any additional work you just had to add a few more people to an email list or something like that and so you learn and uh I think we're apt to see, you know, lower employment growth 
this time than we did last time. So it's likely to be a little slower, and you have less uh, lending capacity at the banks. So, um, you know, I don't know. I guess on the real estate, you've got some yields in there. There are some sectors in there that you could look at, I think, um, healthcare, particularly healthcare realty trust looked interesting. Uh, there's some life insurance here, you know, I don't know. Uh, those were very interesting a year ago when we were talking about some of them, but they've all come back big, you know, big time from the dead. So anyway, you know, I'm looking through here. Where, where can you get uh, a little return still? Where is there still a little uncertainty about the future, et cetera? And so where I ended up finding some uh, some good ideas this week. Uh, first was uh, in this chemical industry. I've talked about it before. You know, there's still some leverage there to uh, economies of scale as the industry consolidates. You have uh, uh, input prices, you know, coming down as a result of, um, uh, you know, the, the economy. And so lower prices are getting locked in for the raw material of their products. And yet as inflation comes through, they're apt to get some price. So there's potential for some margin stability and expansion here that, you know, and there's been some capacity consolidation. So not only is there less supply, which helps pricing, but uh, the cost structures improve because as you shut capacity, of course, you're shutting down your high-cost plants. So, you know, there there's apt to be... Uh, I think a couple good years ahead as we come out of this. First up, CF Industries, ticker CF, um, page 1575. What do these guys do? They manufacture and distribute nitrogen and phosphate fertilizer. Um, the first thing I'm drawn to, just because it's across the top of the value line, um, and it's in big print, which helps me, is that it's... Uh, Relative PE is 0.81, so 81% of the market PE. So, you know, it's at a discount to the to the market, which, you know, some of these cyclical industrials, that is where they tend to trade always is at a discount because of the perceived uh, volatility and the potential for big drops in industrial production, that sort of thing, um, inventory cycles and, and such. So... But I think those kind of cycles have smoothed out with information, technology, and um, you know, knowledge about uh, what's in the channel, those kinds of things. And so things have been a much more stable for them. And the valuation right now, um, you know, it's not great. Um, actually, this one, I sort of got interested in it, got enamored with their business. They're doing 20% returns on capital. I respect that. And that's terrific. Um, they've got no debt to speak of. Um, let's see here. And so, wait a minute. I've made a math error. Hold on, please. Um, yeah, there we go. So, where am I? Okay. Um, so return on equity is also around 21%, but they'd have some borrowing capacity if they wanted to do that. Uh, they've got a uh, an operating margin in the low to mid 30% range, which to me says proprietary, because if I, again, I've said this before, if I look at the inverse of that, if the margin's 34%, that means the cost is 66%. 
So if the total cost is 66%, I can look at the 34 as a markup. So 34 over 66, that's more than 50%. That's their markup on their cost. So if it were a commodity, the sorts of things they're doing, and they're probably doing a bunch of different things that are tricky, obviously, or someone else would do them. I mean, they're getting a 50% markup on their cost. So if you could do it yourself, you would. You can't. I mean, I don't have to read a lot to know that that kind of margin is saying that to me. And then these returns on capital. I mean, that's if, again, uh, if someone could do it, they would do it. They'd come in and do it. So they've got some kind of protected moat. I don't know exactly what it is. Nitrogen fertilizer and phosphate fertilizer. You know, you got to go read about this, but it's quite possible that they own mines that are, uh, you know, in uh, limited supply. Uh, they may own some element of the process of turning the mined, you know, uh, chemicals into fertilizer. They they may have some patents, process. I don't know. But I just think that when you see margins like this and returns on capital like this, you, something's going on. It could be their distribution um, system. Once everyone has a container to hold these products, you know, there's standards on the railroad that hook up to their thing and not someone else's, and so people just do that. I, I don't know. But something is allowing them to earn these returns. Um, their sales are down a lot over the past couple of years, and you'd have to look into this. But from 2007 to 2008, um, sales went from $2.7 billion to three nine, then back to two six. So I don't know if something rolled through here, you know, some kind of big order, big government order, or, you know, who knows. Or if that's all just the price spike that came, you know, in the oil business and they it was passed through, or you know, their business, you know, sort of piggybacked on all that. All commodities got expensive. I don't know, but uh, we're back down to about 2.7 billion. So on that the sales haven't grown, but the operating margin has drifted higher over this whole period, and returns have been stable. And here's the kicker. It's, uh, it's four times EBITDA. So they've got a $4.5 billion market cap, shares times stock price. They've got virtually no debt, $4.7 million. The math there I made was that I thought that said billion, so... I was I was I was going to try to square the circle of the uh discount PE to the uh you know uh market uh, enterprise value to EBITDA but it's just I mean silly math there so it's four times EBITDA and that's important uh to make the note that in the case of EBITDA you know that is a cash flow uh before you've you spent anything on you know, capacity or any capital spending. And this company is capital spending heavy. So when I look at their depreciation, which Value Line gives you, it's about two bucks a share, but the capital spending is four fifty a share. And the depreciation uh, you know, operating income is nine hundred million, depreciation is a hundred million. So I'd have to pull that back out of my EBITDA calculation. 
So instead of 900, because they're spending it on the CapEx side. Now, some of you who listen to some show, I don't know where I talked about this, but sometimes you might look at capital spending as uh you know as a as a positive present value event in that if smart management is spending money to add capacity it must have a positive present value coming from the annuity down the road particularly if it's a somewhat likely or certain um you know stream they're a market leader they're adding capacity you're confident they can fill that capacity you might think of it as a you know, you might not subtract it. So you take EBITDA and you don't subtract out the capital spending because you might view that as, as I said, a, a positive present value event. But in the case of this, you know, there's a bunch of spending here and yet I'm seeing flat sales. So that, again, I haven't read about this, but I'm just surmising that there may be a high maintenance capital spending component. So something that gets amortized because it's not all used in one year, but it, it, it could be a short uh, amortization life and be, because it's maintenance-oriented. you got to paint all your trucks or redo your pipelines or clean the mine or, you know, I don't know, and you got to do it all the time. And so you have this capital spending element that's higher. Um, now, when I see their return on capital rising, it suggests that, well, no, uh, capital spending is higher than depreciation because they're growing capacity, they're growing their capability, or they're spending it on cost-saving uh, technology and systems that is coming back out, you know, in, in a form of lower costs and higher margins. And the margins have been sort of creeping up along with returns on capital. So, um, so I'm not sure, um, but. You know, when I do see higher capital spending than depreciation at this level, I might just, you know, take out a little bit of it. So instead of four times EBITDA, maybe it's actually, you know, five times some kind of EBIT sort of thing. But still, five times, that's 20%. According to Value Line, they're going to grow 4%. Anytime I see a number like 4%, I think for a company with these sorts of returns on capital, that's too low because they're obviously uh, growing faster than everyone when uh, they don't pay much of a dividend, your return is your growth rate. So uh, they can't grow at 4% with a 20% return on capital. I don't know. Anyway, uh, CF Industries, page 1575. Uh, this, I'm sorry this is taking so long. Let's see what else do I have. Okay, DuPont, ticker DD, page 1578. Very similar story here. Um, not as good, in my opinion. Just simply looking at the statistics. Mid-teens returns on capital, but some leverage, so mid-20s return on equity. So here's a contrast with CF Industries. CF Industries has a much higher return on capital, but they don't lever it at all. So they've got a 20% return on capital, 20% return on equity. These guys have a 14% return on capital, DuPont, but they lever it. Uh, they've got $11 billion in debt. Now on a $35 billion market cap, you know, that's okay. But their share equity, their book equity is $8.5 billion, so their debt-to-cap book is 55%. That's high. 
And so return on capital, 14%. But that leverage, 27% return on equity. So, uh, and they also, they sell a little richer than uh, CF at uh, 95% relative P instead of 80. Um, let's see. And, uh, but they, they also pay a little bit of a dividend, 4% yield on this one. Whereas CF doesn't really pay a dividend much, 40 cents, a half a percent yield. These guys are paying a buck 70. That's a pretty high payout, 60% of earnings, but on a cash flow basis, it's about a 30% payout. So it would look sustainable. And looking back over many years, this company does not want to cut the dividend. This only goes back to 1994, but my guess is that the last time they cut the dividend was in 1933 or something like that. Um, they just like to keep the dividends. So that's, uh, who knows, maybe the family's involved still, and it doesn't say that here, but, um, you know, they just they pay a big dividend. So that might be attractive. And the same kinds of things could be working that are working at CF, where they've locked in some good raw material uh, costs, but they're apt to get a pricing going forward. And as the economy picks up, you know, they may be levered going forward to improving sales because of that um, complete fall off in industrial production back in 08. So there's a lot of firms that need to sort of get going on increasing capacity, those sorts of things. DuPont. Uh, they do a whole bunch of different things. It's sort of a diversified investment in science. They have high-performance materials, electronics, safety and security, biotechnology. They operate globally. Uh, they serve markets automotive, construction, ag, medical, apparel, electronics, and nutrition. So, you know, they're very widely exposed to... Um, all economies, all growing economies, because undoubtedly it's their product is adding to the productivity of the buyer. So if the buyer's not growing, they're not going to need DuPont, um, although there's probably some paint in here and stuff like that. The valuation, I sort of forgot to do it here. Let's see. Uh, I'm just going to take the uh, equity market cap, which is shares times price. Value line says that's $35 billion. I'm going to add it to the total debt, 11 billion. That gives me 46 billion, and I'm going to subtract 6 billion from their because that's in their cash. That gives me 40 billion, and then uh, I'm going to take operating margin of 11 percent times 30 billion in sales. So that's 3.1 billion plus 310 billion, so 3.4 billion, and um, so geez, this thing's really not that cheap, is it? When I do that math, 40 over 3.4, so that's, uh, wow, that's 13 times. can't buy this. What am I, who am I kidding? That's way too expensive for me to buy. I don't know what I got enamored by. I think the yield. So 13 times. Good thing I'm doing this. Honestly, I looked through a lot of stocks this week, and, uh, you know, everything's... Uh, so many things are up a lot, it's hard to really recommend much. Um, so this is at a little bit of a discount PE, and it's got a big yield. But, geez, on an enterprise value to EBITDA basis, um, 
This thing is not all that cheap. 13 times. So 1 over 13. Um, what's that? 8%. Okay. And then according to value line, they're going to grow at 5%. But again, as I was saying earlier, if you can put up a uh, mid-teens return on capital, that's your growth rate. So 4% is not right if whatever they're doing continues to earn them that sort of return. Um, I guess they are paying out some of the capital in the, uh, in the, in the dividend, so uh, about half. So, okay, 7%. All right, well... Um, they, they, they may be, you know, in the range. Maybe they're five to ten. Who knows? So I got eight percent plus um, five to ten percent growth. So I'm looking at, you know, what thirteen to eighteen percent return. Wow, I can't recommend that. So that's too expensive. Sorry. Try to bring that one up. Okay, next up, what do I have here? Let me take a closer look here. Don't want to get caught up in any of that sort of thing again. Uh, hmm. Wow, how embarrassing. I totally thought that was a buy. Wow. Uh, okay. Finally, and perhaps most importantly... But maybe not. I'm not sure yet. Uh, Watson Pharmaceuticals, ticker WPI, page 1625. I know I've done this one before. In fact, uh, for those of you that are still listening, the, uh, if anyone is, if you take our XML code, which is accessible on the homepage, thevalueguys.com, and if you pull that into in either Internet Explorer... Uh, or, um, I'm sorry, not Internet Explorer. If you take our XML code um, into Excel, Microsoft Excel, all the shows line up and they, um, uh, they're indexed by ticker and date. So you could see all the past shows we did for Watson or any of these names. But I know I've done this before. What I'm attracted to um, is that they're in a growing area. They do generic pharmaceuticals. They have some branded product as well. And I look at that as a stable growing area because they're apt to grow at population growth at least, plus a little bit because of the aging of the population um, and the fact that medicine per capita, independent of the demographics for every age group, are going up uh, each year because medicine is the most efficient form of healthcare in terms of dollars saved from, you know, lost work or time in the hospital for dollars spent on the medicine. And it's more productive than um, hospital visits, doctor visits. When you just look at the cost in, so the pill or what have you, or the treatment, the medicine, um, and then, you know, how quickly you're back to work or how quickly you're out of the hospital. So, Drugs as a percent of the healthcare uh, spend have been going up for a long time, and within that group, generics. You know, you may hear a lot about, um, you know, the FDA is not approving as many drugs. The 
the big drug companies are not finding as many new um, compounds, etc. Um, we hear about the spiraling costs of medicine on the one hand, and yet on the other, these companies aren't inventing drugs anymore, and all their expensive patented drugs, the biggest drugs on the planet, like Lipitor and things like that, are going off patent in the next few years, and they're going generic. And so then it's all a volume game, economies of scale, relationships with doctors, so manufacturing costs, selling costs, and Watson is is uh, is in that business, and they're one of the uh, the big guys in it. They do about four billion in sales. Um, their business splits. They do. Uh, it's not all generic, and I'm looking for the percentage here. You know, it doesn't say. I, I think they're let's say two thirds generic. That's my memory. And so I, I like the built-in sort of unit growth over time. And as they get bigger, their economies of scale get better, and their unit costs should go down, and so their margins should go up. And, uh, you know, in addition, I think their cost on the selling side is related to the number of doctors, the number of hospitals, the number of stops on the route, the number of relationships per salesperson, and those aren't going up. Each doctor or each hospital will be using more product, but I don't think your costs go up that much from a you know an SG&A point of view. So I, I like those elements, but with all those glowing remarks, it's not showing up in the return of capital, sadly. So they do upper single-digit return on capital. That's just a sign of how competitive this business is because um, typically the drug company itself that invented the thing nowadays stays in and competes with you even at the lower price of a generic because you know they keep the brand name and yeah it's a lower price but now they go for market share and they think about the cost structure is incrementally low and and so uh, the outside guys like Watson um, they they don't make that much money on these things their operating margin is in the 20s but my guess is a lot of that is the branded side where they probably, if they're like Pfizer and Merck, you know, making the 60%, 70% gross margin on those kinds of things, 30 40% operating margin. And that takes uh, the average up from a pure generic operating margin that, you know, might be 10 to 15%. In other, in other words, the level at which their return on capital on that business would just be, you know, 11%. That might be the the sort of competitive uh, fair level for capital and equities. If you look at the long-term return in equities, it's in that 9%, 10% range, so that's a fair return for the risk of equities. And if you see returns on capital around that level, you know, it just means that you're sort of, you're not losing, you're not gaining, you're just sort of a fair return. And, of course, you know, we're looking for unfair returns. So, uh, this one, for me, um, I have to hope that the returns on capital continue to improve, and I'm attracted to the valuation, which is seven times EBITDA. Uh, one over seven here is uh, 14%. Value line says they might grow 9% in earnings, and that's, you know, I'm going to buy that. So that gives me low 20s. To the extent that they have to spend money to grow, um, in the case of a company like this, a lot of that's in the R&D in terms of uh, finding new things and or an SG&A. 
terms of paying for other products and such. Capital spending, um, you know, new capacity and those kinds of things in this business is not that big of a deal. I mean, it, not to minimize it, but it's big vats of things and it's, uh, you know, it's kind of fairly contained and, uh, you know, nothing too fancy. Um, and so uh, their capital spending here, 65 cents a share, their depreciation is about a buck a share. So they're actually, you know, um, reaping some cash flow benefits on that. Um, so long-term growth potential, pretty good. Uh, opportunity to gain share of all healthcare spending or medical spending, pretty good. And uh, decent valuation, seven times EBITDA. So I like it. According to Value Line, there's a couple of uh, pretty good franchises they have in here. One is Contraceptives. Um, According to Value Line, they're, these guys are going to have one of the generic Lipitors sometime in um, 2012. So that's the best-selling drug in the world right now. These are going to have an authorized generic formula for Lipitor, which I don't know what that means exactly, other than is Pfizer going to bless the product from Watson? That just sounds good. And, um, you know, recent results have been pretty good. They... They did make an acquisition recently, and the stock has reacted well to it. You know, it's at 42 today. You could have bought it for 20, you know, last year. But, you know, I'm not going to look back at that. It's a good deal today. Watson, ticker, WPI. Oh, my gosh, I've gone on and on with the show. So I'm just going to end it. That's the end of the show. Favorite stock this week, uh, CF Industries, 1575. Thanks for listening, everybody. This has been the Value Line Observer. Uh, see all of our caveats again and details, www.thevalueguys.com. Thanks for listening in. Bye-bye.